Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. curious if you've been reading some of these recent articles about this new fast track or this this quick path to uh, get products to market, an alternative to a 510K, if you will, from an FDA perspective. Some interesting reading, but as you read through this and, and the new FDA guidance document on least burdensome approach, I want you to think about one thing. Is there anything new here? Well, good news for you, Mike Drews and I dive into this topic on the next episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And I'm excited to have my guest, Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences, join me today. Mike, how are you? I'm well, John. Thank you. Well, Mike, I know you're a big fan of regulatory strategy and, and uh, you know, for people to, to think for themselves, so to speak, uh, when it comes to, to regulatory uh, as a science and, and that sort of thing. And it's with that, uh, that, that spirit in mind, really, that I was hoping we could dive into some recent news, I suppose. Uh, specifically, there's been something, a few things that I've, I've come across about a new draft guidance that FDA has uh, around the least burdensome approach uh, concepts and principles that, that came out a few weeks ago. And then also there's been a few other articles that have come out about fast track and this sort of thing. So what do you know about this, this new guidance document, the least burdensome provisions? Well, it's a great place to start, John, uh, and thanks to the uh, for the opportunity to have this conversation with you and your audience. The guidance that you're referring to coming out just last month in mid-December of 2017, uh, entitled The Least Burdensome Provisions, Concepts, and, and Principles, basically tries to add some clarity to this concept of least burdensome, which actually has not, has, is, is in fact not new, um, but it's been around for a long time. It was officially introduced in the regulatory vernacular back in 1997 as part of the FDA Modernization Act of 1997. Right. But when you think about it, it actually goes back to the 1976 when the 510K was created because the whole premise of the original 510K took advantage of the least burdensome approach. And then more recently with the 21st Century Cures Act that went into effect in 2016 at the end of the uh, Obama administration, that tried to further clarify and expand the um, least burdensome concept. So this is really, I think, the, 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 the reason why more people are talking about it today. And the most important reason why people are talking about it today is because it's the natural extension of one of President Trump's uh, campaign promises, and that is to reduce regulation across the board, including FDA regula- regulation, uh, in order to try to um, allow safe and effective medical devices to get out into use as, as early as possible. Yeah, it's it's with that last point of mine, and I think you and I talked about this, and and can't remember if we actually did a podcast about it or not, but I know you and I talked about, you know, prior to. Uh, Trump taking office, there was a lot of of uh, hubbub, so to speak, about whether or not. You know, I even remember reading the title of one article that you know that 
that President Trump was going to blow up the FDA, you know, not you know more in, a, in an operational uh, um, standpoint. And there was a lot of of um, press about you know who the next uh, head of FDA was going to be and that sort of thing. And and now I think you know the the first few things that that came out you know once Trump took office was about the impact on the pharmaceutical side of of the life sciences industry. And now, from my perspective anyway, this is sort of that first formal you know, uh, uh, content that we're seeing about the impact, potential impact on med device. I think you're right, John. I think in that sense, it is the first formal um, uh, content coming out of the agency. Uh, just a little bit of historical perspective, as some of the audience may remember, uh, in February of 2017, just a few months after President Trump uh, came into uh, uh, office, he announced that specifically when it came to FDA regulation, his goal was to reduce FDA's regulation by some 70 to 80 percent. And to be honest, politics aside, I think, you know, I hear a lot of people, as I'm sure you do as well, John, um, say that we have too much regulation. Other people might say we have too little regulation. I think that's really the wrong question that we should be asking. Um, uh, the amount of regulation is not important. What's much more important to me as a regulatory consultant, is, and as you know, and many of your audience know, John, I work as a consultant for the FDA as well. So I see these issues from both sides. It's not the amount of regulation that's important. It's what that regulation actually accomplishes in the real world. Because every day as a regulatory consultant, I read regulation, not just here in the United States, but around the world, that to me as a professional biomedical engineer makes absolutely no sense. And yet people follow it anyway. And so I think that uh, it's not the amount of regulation that's important. It's, it's what it actually does. But Let's come back to the topic of today's discussion, and that is least burdensome. And I thought one thing that would be interesting to talk a little bit about is FDA's revised definition of least burdensome, which, as I said, has been around for decades, but this was recently updated in this guidance last month. Uh, basically, what they said was, um, what is the minimum amount of information necessary to adequately address a regulatory question or issue through the most efficient manner at the right time? Again, I don't normally insult people's intelligence by reading a regulation or a definition to them, but because this is important, let me read yeah. it one more time, and John, I'll ask you to kind of think about, you know, tell, tell us what you think of this definition. So FDA's definition of least burdensome, right out of this last guidance, the minimum amount of information necessary to adequately address a regulatory question or issue through the most efficient manner at the right time. John, as a as a regulatory and quality guy, what do you think that means? Well, there's a lot of fuzzy words in there. Uh, adequately, most efficient, <laughs> um, you know. And and uh, uh, I confess, yeah, I'm an engineer, and and uh, I look for nice black and white, uh, you know, non-gray, non-fuzzy terms that I can objectively, as best as possible, wrap my head around. But there is a lot of ambiguity there, and and I suppose. Uh, you know, if, if there's one thing that I've learned uh, from Mike Drews over the years of of talking to you, it's uh, it, it's this, and I'll paraphrase, paraphrase: use that ambiguity to my advantage. You know, I get to define what that means, and as long as I build build the case to support what minimum amount of information necessary to adequately address regulatory question or issue through the most efficient manner at this at the right time, as long as I can build that case to my advantage, then. Good for me, right? 
Well, I'm glad that you remember that from our many conversations, John. That is an important <laughs> lesson to be learned because I agree with you 100%. That is a very ambiguous definition. Although, to be fair, I'm not sure I could come up with a better definition. You That's know, it's true. Kind of like substantial equivalence. Yeah. What the heck does substantial equivalence really mean? The devil's in the details. Um, and, you know, this is uh, it's also important to remember this is part of a broader initiative um, where FDA is trying to reduce the amount of clinical evidence that's required for approvals um, in keeping with President Trump's vow to cut regulation. And I think this is, presents sort of an interesting uh, difference uh, between what's happening now in the United States versus in the EU. Yeah. As you know, in the, in the EU, with the new uh, MDRs going into effect, um, the, the EU is now expecting more clinical evidence. And yet here on this side of the pond, you know, in many cases, FDA is saying, you know, less clinical evidence or perhaps to be fair, maybe less clinical evidence pre-clearance or pre-approval and more of that burden is being shifted towards once the product is on the market. Yeah, I, um, I came across um, a report. Boy, it's been a few weeks ago, but I, I did write a piece about it because it was really intriguing to me. Um, I don't know. And, and it's probably a, a, a conversation for a different podcast, but there is some interest from FDA on patient reported outcomes of devices. And, and uh, you know, when I read that, it seemed to me like, you know, I was confused because almost the next day I was reading uh, all these other uh, articles about this alternate pathway to the 510K. And it seemed like there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of conflict happening. Like, you know, is, is FDA going to be requiring more patient data? But at the same time, I'm reading that they're looking for this alternate pathway. And, and, you know, so as a practitioner, I was a, a bit, a bit, um, confused because, you know, if I need to gather more patient data, then that doesn't necessarily mean a, a faster path. That usually means a slower path um, uh, if I'm going to be subjected to that. And that's where, you know, I think this conversation that you and I are having today is going to be helpful to the audience to, you know, maybe give them a little bit of, of clarity on this because there's a lot of conflicting information that's out there. And as you noted, all the changes with the, the EU uh, medical device regulations, uh, certainly, it, it seems as though that's going to make it more challenging to get products to market by requiring more and more clinical data. Well, I think the topic of clinical data and how much clinical data that you need and when you collect it, either pre or post market, I think those are all great topics of discussion. We should definitely plan on having a uh, a future podcast specifically on that topic. But I suspect uh, for your audience at the moment, John, because of this uh, particular guidance, maybe we should delve into this uh, quote-unquote alternative pathway uh, to the 510K. And what I think is kind of interesting is that it's being marketed. And by the way, you know, in politics, there's just as much, you know, spin as there are in, in medicine. It's being marketed as uh, a new fast track to market for certain medical devices uh, that, have a, uh, that have a potential reduction in the amount of safety data required for approval. As a result, this could save companies millions of dollars in testing and take, maybe take months or even years off the development time. So when we see um, uh, announcements like that in the, pre in the press, that's obviously going to um, uh, you know capture people's attention. But John, do you think that this new uh, alternative pathway to the 510K, is there anything new about it in your view? Uh, 
Mike, no. Uh, and we're, no, there's not. Um, you know, and, and like you said, there may be spin, but you know, when you read headlines, like, you know, and this was one of the, the one that, that, uh, well, caught my attention and, and, uh, good for, for the writer of the article. Cause they, they, they met, they, uh, created a really good headline, but it said FDA medical device proposal may skirt the law. <laughs> you know, it's like, Whoa, wait, what's that all about? And then you start reading and you're like, Oh, well, uh, this isn't, this isn't new. Um, it's a, you know, it's maybe a, a puts a little bit more emphasis on on uh, technical standards and and that sort of you know data and information you know to demonstrate uh, safety rather than than putting more weight on the predicate side of things. But by and large, I didn't read anything that was like, oh wow, this is revolutionary. It, it just seemed like it was uh, very similar to to what uh, we've been accustomed to for many years now. What about you? And, 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 and I agree with you. I mean, that was obviously a leading question, perhaps even a loaded question. But when you and I say it's not new for the benefit of the audience, what is this uh, exactly describing? It's an existing regulatory pathway to market, albeit a very uncommonly used pathway to market. But it is one of the uh, types of 510K. What is, what is being described in this guidance here? You know, it, it reads to me like uh, very much like what FDA already has uh, with the abbreviated 510K. That's exactly right, John. Kudos to you. You hit the nail right on the head. This is exactly the abbreviated 510K. There is absolutely nothing new here. Um, you know, as we were, uh, as I was thinking about our discussion today, I was constantly reminded of the old uh, French philosopher. I don't remember his name, but he said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. The abbreviated 510K, the the abbreviated 510K, which is not used very commonly, as as you probably know, uh, of all of the three to five thousand 510Ks that come onto the market every every year, um, only about four percent of them come onto the market using the abbreviated pathway. About seventy percent are the traditional, about twenty two percent are the special, and the remaining four percent are so or so are the abbreviated. Um, that pathway has been around for a very long time, and it relies on a consensus standard. In other words, you're not showing that your device is substantially equivalent to another specific device, a predicate device. You're showing that your device is essentially substantially equivalent, and I'm using the definition of substantially equivalent, equivalent a little bit loosely here. You're showing it's essentially um, uh, substantially equivalent to a technology, a technological standard, a guidance document, something like that. So as I say in some of my regulatory courses, you can um, accomplish, you can make an abbreviated 510K submission in only one sentence if you wanted to. All you would be required to do is say, my device conforms to this particular standard and mm. sign it and date it and you're done. Now, of course, I would never make an abbreviated 510K submission that way, but uh, but that's exactly what the essence of the abbreviated 510K submission is. And by the way, because um, I get this question a lot from people, John, um, abbreviated doesn't necessarily mean what a lot of people think that it means. In other words, abbreviated does not mean faster or easier or anything like that. As a matter of fact, uh, if you look at the RTA guidance, the refuse to accept guidance that came out uh, about two years ago, the abbreviated 510K checklist is actually longer than the traditional 510K checklist. So there is some irony to that. Yeah. Um, 
But nonetheless, what they're describing here is the abbreviated 510K. What do you think of that, John? Well, uh, it's, um, it is, uh, you said it a moment ago. I mean, the, you know, the spin factor is, is, seems to be a little bit at play. Uh, you know, the industry uh, has, has often talked about faster paths to market and, you know, getting, getting things through the regulatory uh, obstacles a, a little bit smoother, uh, a little bit faster and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and, and good on, on FDA for uh, reminding us uh, of this, this path that, that's always been there that um, uh, now we can uh, take advantage of, I suppose. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I guess on one hand, on one hand, John, I think it's like it's good that you say it's good for FDA to remind us. On the other hand, I would like to think that for those of us that working in this industry, we don't need a reminder like that from the <laughs> FDA that we right. understand all of our different pathways to market. And I'm being very serious about this. This would be like a surgeon not being familiar with all the different methods that they can do to use to to accomplish a particular procedure. So, um, but I, I also think that this pathway also represents another. Um, area of potential regulatory divergence, not mm-hmm. convergence, but divergence between the U.S. and what's going on in the EU right now. Because as you know, with the new MDR uh, regulation going into effect across the pond, they're wanting more and more specific comparisons to specific devices, um, uh, similar devices or reference devices, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it seems like, at least in this particular case, for certain kinds of technologies, for certain kinds of devices, for lower risk kinds of devices, uh, we're going away from that. So it seems to me that there might be, uh, you know, some 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 differences that people are going to have to be aware of, uh, depending on what side of the, the the earth they happen to be dealing with at the time. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, prior to the EU MDR uh, going into effect, I mean, it was very possible that your product development and your regulatory strategy i mean they would they would by and large not not exactly but by and large be in harmony with one another or in sync with one another and you know now it definitely d- does seem like there's uh, a, a divergence where you're going to have uh, have to have two different strategies maybe more uh, you know uh, depending on where in the world that you're going to be uh, pursuing you know your market opportunities and you know, maybe, and this is speculative here, but maybe this is is uh, FDA's way of saying, "Hey, um, medical device companies who want to be innovative, uh, remember that the most innovative opportunities that you have in the world to bring your product to market, maybe that's through uh, FDA channels rather than other regulatory channels." I don't, I don't know. And like I said, that might be speculation. Well, let's let's that, that's um, uh, you know I, I I hate to say it, my friend, but I think you're starting to drink some of the Kool Aid yourself. <laughs> let's, let's 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 think about this a little bit because um, when we talk about innovative devices, okay, innovative technologies, okay, if there's already some sort of a guidance document, if there's already some sort of a consensus standard describing it, how innovative or new is it? I would argue that if there is already a guidance on it or a, um, a, a consensus standard on the technology, I'm sorry, that's not new. 
that's not innovative. You know, oftentimes I hear people say to me they're working on this new and novel medical device, and when they describe it to me in about 30 seconds, I quickly realize this is really not new or novel. So several years ago, I developed sort of my own little litmus test, and I perhaps have shared with this with you in one of our podcasts before. I'm not sure. If you think you're working on something truly new or novel, ask yourself the following three questions. Is there regulation on it? Is there guidance on it? Is there reimbursement for it? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but you're not working on anything new or novel. (laughs) Because at least in my book, one of the parts of the definition of new or novel means that you are doing something for the first time, or at least one of the first times. And as a result, there is no regulation, there is no guidance, there is no reimbursement for it. What do you think of that, John? Well, you know, I, I feel like I just got put in my place by by Mike Drews a little bit, <laughs> but that's uh, and it's a it's a valid. Well, that point. was not my intent. <laughs> no, no, but it's a valid point. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I guess what um, what I was attempting to do is compare uh, FDA regulatory uh, versus EU regulatory, and I guess if uh, you know the 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 more innovative of the two approaches, at least in our current uh, landscape, certainly seems to be a more of an FDA approach. Uh, but, you know, touche, um, uh, this goes back to uh, some of the, the other things that we've talked about. And, you know, you, and you did a webinar for Greenlight Guru recently on the topic of de novo. Uh, you know, folks, if Mike's right, if you want to be truly innovative, then, then you're considering you're, you're probably going to be in a space like a de novo or, or PMA type of, of uh, submission to bring your, your product to market rather than a 510K abbreviated traditional and that sort of thing. So just keep that in mind. But, um, but you know, it is interesting though that as you read these, these articles, and, and folks will share a lot of these uh, with the, the, the uh, content that accompanies the podcast. Um, when you read it, 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 some of the statements are, are really interesting that are in these articles. But, but as you know, Mike and I have talked about, here today, it's not really new. You know, this is these are these are provisions that have been available to us for for quite some time. And you know, to Mike's uh, comment uh, a moment ago about the the refuse to accept checklist for an abbreviated 510k, in fact, being longer and more comprehensive than a traditional 510k. This is the message that that I think we need to leave, leave with, uh, or, or or make sure people understand. The burden of proof, uh, you know, to demonstrate that your product is safe, is still there. This is not um, cutting any corners or or reducing, you know, the types of things that we should be doing as good product developers, as as good engineers. We still have that that responsibility uh, to to the patients, to the caregivers who are going to be using our product, to be able to demonstrate that our product is in fact safe. I agree, John. That's an important message, and I would just amplify that. Let me be crystal clear. Let me be as pragmatic as I can. I have no problem with this alternative approach, this new approach, this uh, abbreviated 510K. I don't care, quite frankly, what we call it. After all, Shakespeare Smith, a rose by any other name, still smells as sweet. So I don't care what we call it. What I care about is how we use it. So if a medical device company is developing a device based on well-established technology, technology that's been around for a long time, technology that's used in a number of different devices, technology that is well understood, that has a history, uh, and so on, 
I have no problem using these shortened, these abbreviated approaches, if you will, if you want to make a substantial equivalence argument to a technological standard. I have no problem with that. What I do have a bit of a problem with and is there, you know, let's be honest, there are some companies out there that might use this as an opportunity to go beyond that and to see this as just yet another loophole of law as an excuse not to do what you and I have talked about before, John, makes sense from a biology and an engineering perspective. I mean, at the end of the day, this should not be um, uh, an excuse for sloppy, sloppy engineering. Um, you know, I've been a huge fan of the abbreviated uh, 510K for many, many years, long before this new guidance came out, long before President Trump took office. Um, but it needs to be used properly. And uh, I'm not, you know, I, I just think, you know, sometimes that just doesn't always happen the way that it should. Yeah, that's a really good point. And folks, um, you know, like I said, it's, um, we'll share a lot of the content that uh, it's interesting. We'll share a link to the, to the least burdensome uh, guidance document and, and, you know, feel free to form your own opinion, but um, Mike, any, any parting words to our audience before we wrap up today's conversation? Well, (laughs) <laughs> I'm surprised that you're going to give me the opportunity. <laughs> because, uh, uh, no, I, I listen. Is 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 your audience who has listened to us before? No, I'm a huge fan of doing what makes sense. Um, and if something makes sense to me from a biology and an engineering perspective, I have absolutely no problem taking it to the FDA and sell it to them. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, I pride myself on not being the regulatory police. Let's face it, John, and many organizations, many companies are just, or sorry, many regulatory folks are just viewed as the police because they're constantly telling R&D and manufacturing and other areas what they cannot do. I do not take that approach. I say, here's what you can do uh, as long as it makes sense. In some cases, the testing requirements that FDA uh, puts in place are sufficient, and I have no problem meeting them. In other cases, I think the testing requirements that FDA puts into a place are overly burdensome. And in those cases, I will go to the FDA and say, it is not necessary to do this particular kind of testing, and here are all the reasons why. And yet, in some cases, I think the testing requirements that are in place by FDA are not sufficient as a professional biomedical engineer. And in those cases, I will go to the FDA and say, in addition to what testing that you're asking us to do, we are also doing this additional testing because this is the right thing to do from a biology and engineering perspective. So that's my most important message to your audience, John. That might not always make me the most popular person in the room, but as a regulatory consultant, one of my most important jobs is to ask questions that sometimes other people don't want to ask. Something to think about. Yeah, it definitely is. And, and folks, um, I mean, the, the key thing here is is use your brain, you know, think for yourself. I mean, no, no one knows your product, your technology, uh, at least I hope better than you. And, you know, you have to, you have to be able, of course, you know, the, the burden of proof to demonstrate that that product is safe is, is absolutely something that you need to do, but don't just follow blindly. Don't just, you know, uh, fall into the trap of assuming that, you know, because there's this standard or, or this guidance or this thing over there, uh, that you have to blindly follow that without, you know, using using your own brain and your own thinking capacity and and that sort of thing. So, you know, Mike's right. You know, there's plenty of 
I assume if you listen to all the podcasts and the webinars that, and the content that that um, Mike and I have have done over the years, that you know you can you can do this um, pretty well. You can figure out you know a path that makes most sense, and at the same time, you know, reach out to to Mike Drews at Vascular Sciences. Or you can reach out to to me at Greenlight Guru. If you have any questions or comments, we're here to help you. Uh, we want you to get your new products to market uh, as as quickly as possible and you know whether that means using a, a traditional 510k or an abbreviated 510k or a de novo path or whatever the path may be you've got people in your corner who are here uh, to help you with your sound regulatory strategy um, you know and it's with that in mind you know that we've built the greenlight guru software platform you know our product has workflows to help you build that burden of proof through the design and development process, through design controls, through risk management. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about what we do at Greenlight Guru, I encourage you to go over to www.greenlight.guru and um, read about all the things that we're doing and click the green button or the blue button, I'm sorry, to request more information and we'd be happy to have a conversation with you. As always, uh, thank my guest, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences from for joining me on this conversation today. And uh, I can assure you that we're going to have many more exciting conversations on the Global Medical Device Podcast.